feels as though there is never enough time to accomplish the tasks and pursue the goals that we have set for ourselves. Is that really the case? Some highly productive people that I admire seem to be characterized by a degree of discipline and organization that enables them to accomplish an order of magnitude more than the rest of us. So it cannot be that time is the limiting factor. I get the feeling that it is focus that differentiates us. Imagine how productive you could be if you could simply schedule your time and attentively carry out each task in the schedule without distraction or compromise. It's actually kind of mysterious that evolved human beings don't operate that way by default. If the capacity to focus and accomplish our goals would enhance fitness, why doesn't it come easier? Ultimately, this is a question for evolutionary psychology, but I have some speculations. First, attention is costly in terms of energy. I have previously suggested that the nature of evolved conscious beings is to pursue preferable qualia. Since we evolved from animals for which the reduction of wasted energy in an ecosystem with limited resources is of paramount interest, it may be that we have inherited psychological software which is insufficient for our modern environment. We prefer not to exert ourselves beyond what is absolutely necessary. Had we evolved for a hundred thousand years in our present environment, in a condition of relative resource plentitude, we might see that preferential qualitative states accompany tasks requiring a high degree of focus and analysis. On the African savanna, upon which humans did most of their evolution, it may be that a high capacity for discipline and organization was not of particularly high value. We see that societies arising over the past few thousand years have found ways to express these values and to pass them through culture rather than genes. If we're to be successful on our own terms within the modern context, we will have to take on board the best wisdom that our history, our philosophies, our religions and traditions have to offer. And with our character thus fortified, we shall have to work uphill against the pitfalls of our nature. This episode is about attention. The senses and internal cognitive workings of the brain must be made up of a huge and unwieldy sum of data, but as we can observe, the mind at any moment is limited in its content. Attention is distinct from the phenomenon of consciousness, but like working memory, it's kind of difficult to imagine what consciousness would be like in its absence. In principle, selective attention winnows the possible contents of consciousness to those that are the most relevant. In agreement with this basic idea in The Principles of Psychology, Williams James wrote, quote, Everyone knows what attention is. It is the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought, unquote. An article titled The Relationship Between Attention and Consciousness, an Expanded Taxonomy and Implications for No Report Paradigms, written by Michael Pitts, Lydia Luciana, and Stephen Hilliard, starts with a discussion of the definition of attention. They write, quote, It is important to operationally define these terms from the outset. Following Desimone and Duncan, Cohen et al., and others, we refer to attention in the broadest sense as the process of selecting a subset of the available sensory information for preferential processing. This includes both top-down, endogenous, and bottom-up, exogenous attention as well as attention to spatial locations, sensory features, moments in time, or entire perceptual objects." Unquote. Thus we can distinguish between top-down and bottom-up forms of attention. When we admonish someone to 
pay attention, we are referring to top-down, volitional controlled attention, often called focal attention. This is what Pitts et al. call endogenous attention. With focal attention, we are actively focusing on one thing at the expense of others. Bottom-up, saliency-driven attention is what we refer to when we say that something caught my attention. This is what Pitts et al. call exogenous attention. Saliency-driven attention occurs automatically. The salient object or event captures our attention at the expense of other possible objects or events. In his book, The Quest for Consciousness, Christoph Koch discusses how attention speeds up the neural processing of events. He writes, quote, In a classical reaction time experiment conducted by the neuropsychologist Michael Posner at the time at the University of Oregon, subjects fixate a mark at the center of an otherwise empty monitor. At some point during the trial, a light is flashed at one of four locations on the screen. Subjects have to push a button as soon as they see the light without moving their eyes. On many, but not all, trials, the location of the upcoming flash of light is indicated by a cue, say an arrow, at the fixation mark. People take around 290 milliseconds to respond to the light if they have no idea where it might appear, but require only 260 milliseconds if cued. If prompted to attend to the left when the light actually appears on the right, reaction time increases to 320 milliseconds. The simplest interpretation is that attention speeds up the detection of the flash of light by 30 to 50 milliseconds. Focal attention also enhances the visibility of faint contrasts and subtle spatial features." Unquote. This difference in the rate of conscious awareness for an object or an event depends on attention. What might be the neuronal mechanisms underlying this effect? Koch describes an example of a simple experiment done with a monkey in which a scene is composed of nothing more than a horizontal line and a vertical line. He says that this simple input will activate at least tens of thousands of neurons across the visual cortex. Some neurons in the visual cortex respond selectively to vertical bars, while others respond selectively to horizontal bars. Other neurons might respond unselectively. Koch writes, quote, what is the effect of these dual stimuli on an individual neuron that responds preferentially to a single vertical bar, but barely to a horizontal bar by itself? As long as the monkey is attending elsewhere, the neuron's response to their joint appearance is less than the response to the vertical bar by itself. This reduction in firing is due to interneuronal tug-of-war and has profound consequences when looking at the real world filled with adjacent or even overlapping objects. Without attention, cortical neurons would respond to all of this stuff, but without gusto. Thus, it would be difficult for any one coalition to establish itself. As a consequence, the prefrontal cortex would hear only a cacophony of weak voices. Things change, though, if the animal attends to the vertical bar. Now the cell's original vigorous response is almost restored. It is as if all cells whose preferred orientation is vertical receive a boost, enabling them to successfully fight off the inhibitory influence of the non-preferred stimuli. The same logic also applies when the monkey attends to the cell's non-preferred horizontal stimulus, but in the opposite way. Boosted by attentional bias, the horizontally selective cells in a nearby orientation com column will fire more strongly. They can therefore more effectively suppress the response of neighboring cells that encode for other orientations, such as the vertical cell." Unquote. So the effect of attention to one of two possible objects is to magnify the attended object's representation in consciousness and to suppress 
the other object. In the temporally integrated causality landscape, my framework for consciousness, a massive integrated system occurs with some number of discrete or overlapping subsystems within it. The subsystems each have a higher degree of temporally integrated causality across their specific elements than does the system as a whole. Contents emerge in consciousness only when an appropriate subsystem occurs in the system. Thus, top-down attention, likely driven by the prefrontal cortex, serves to amplify neuronal firing rates making up a particular subsystem while suppressing other neurons and keeping them from forming alternate subsystems. By this means, I propose that attended stimuli produce vivid, memorable conscious contents that stand out relative to the background. The sense of gist that we have with regard to an overall visual scene would occur in the case of co-occurring unattended stimuli that produce subsystems which barely exceed the threshold set by the overall system. Such subsystems produce conscious content that is weak and unmemorable. Any elements which have an indistinguishable level of temporally integrated causality among themselves compared to that which occurs across the whole system will produce no conscious contents at all. I previously told you about a classic study by Dan Simons and Christopher Chabri in which viewers were asked to watch a short film showing two teams, one in white, the other in black, tossing a basketball. Viewers were instructed to count the number of passes made by the white team. That is, the viewers were attending to the players dressed in white as the ball moved between them. In the middle of the film, a man in a gorilla suit enters. He beats his chest a few times and then he leaves. The majority of subjects never saw the gorilla. This effect is called inattentional blindness. The team dressed in black is being actively suppressed from visual processing as the team dressed in white is being amplified. I would expect that the fact that the gorilla suit is black would increase the likelihood of it being visually suppressed, and if the color black in the visual scene is being suppressed by attentional mechanisms, it would seem that in the case of viewers who never saw the gorilla, the would-be subsystem for producing consciousness of the gorilla never gains sufficient temporally integrated causality. Visual search is an application of attention that has been utilized in experiments first developed by Anne Treisman and Bella Jules. You may recall in the previous episode on split brain patients, I talked about an attention test using an array of blue and red squares as distractors. On Treisman and Jules' studies, Koch writes, quote, they focused on a deceptively simple question. How does the time taken to find the target increase as the number of distracting objects increases? For some combinations of target and distractors, the search is effortless. Subjectively, the target pops out of the display. Finding a red bar among 4, 8, 16, or 32 green bars scattered all over the place happens very fast, no matter how many green elements are present. If a bunch of L's are placed on the screen, the odd plus sign stands out. In the parlance of computer science, the search proceeds in parallel, unless the individual elements begin to crowd into each other. In general, pop-out occurs if the target is sufficiently different from the distractors in any one elemental attribute, such as color, size, form, or motion, as when you rapidly move your computer mouse back and forth to find the location of the pointer on the screen." Unquote. The alternative to parallel search in which the item of interest pops out is a slower serial search strategy that is necessary when the targets and distractors are very similar to one another. Is attention necessary for consciousness? According to my thinking, it is not. It is certainly a valuable adaptation to be able to distinguish among stimuli in terms of the values of the conscious organism in a given context. There are some areas of disagreement among theories with regard to the necessity of attention for consciousness. 
The article by Pitts et al. contrasts global neuronal workspace theory, GNWT, and recurrent processing theory, RPT, on these grounds. The authors write, quote, on the one hand, GNWT argues that NCCs begin relatively late in time, more than 350 milliseconds, after stimulus onset, and rely on widespread cortical interactions, particularly involving frontoparietal networks. On the other hand, RPT posits that NCCs arise early in time, less than 150 milliseconds, and involve localized recurrent processing within sensory cortex. In terms of how consciousness relates to other psychological functions, GNWT postulates that attention is necessary for conscious perception, and that working memory is closely linked with global neuronal work workspace activity. RPT, however, suggests that conscious perception emerges at a more basic level, and is independent from cognitive functions such as attention and working memory. Finally, GNWT asserts that we experience one, or at best a few conscious contents in any given moment, while RPT hypothesizes a phenomenologically rich and multifaceted conscious experience." Unquote. This distinction between the global neuronal workspace and recurrent processing theories with regard to attention is reminiscent of Ned Block's distinction between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Access consciousness refers specifically to those experiences which can result in behavioral output, such as a verbal report. Phenomenal consciousness refers to raw subjective experiences, whether they can be remembered or reported at all. Michael Graziano has proposed the attention schema theory of consciousness. He and his colleagues propose that the brain constructs a model or a schema of the process of attention, just as the brain constructs a model of the body or body schema. The attention schema theory says that awareness is the brain's internal model of how it processes attention. Graziano notes that the brain constructs a model of the thing being attended to, as well as of the self, and of the relationship between them. The brain's model of attention is the relationship between the self-construct and the attended object construct. The author presents a simple figure showing brain A and brain B. Each brain is representing, or modeling, what it sees. The figure shows a person gazing at an apple. In the simpler case of brain A, the person sees the apple, and an apple is represented in consciousness. In the alternative, brain B, the person sees the apple, the apple is represented in consciousness along with the self which is seeing the apple. So brain B is conscious of the apple as well as the fact that it is attending to the apple. Graziano writes, quote, How does this proposal address the brain basis of subjective experience? The hypothesized model of attention or the attention schema, would not be a perfectly detailed model of the neuroscientific phenomenon of attention. It would not include anything about lateral inhibition, signal competition, or action potentials. The brain has no functional use for information about those physical details. Instead, the model would be more like a cartoon sketch that depicts the most important and useful aspects of attention without representing any of the mechanistic details that make attention actually happen. Based on the information contained in this simplified model, brain B would conclude that it possesses a phenomenon with all of the most salient aspects of attention, the ability to take mental possession of an object, focus one's resources on it, and ultimately act on it, but without any of the mechanisms that make this process physically possible. It would conclude that it possesses a magical, non-physical essence, but one which can nevertheless act and exert causal control over behavior, a mysterious conclusion indeed. 
According to this theory, there is, of course, no actual mystery. Attention does have a real physical basis, but the mechanistic details of the process of attention are not included in the only relevant information to which the brain has access. The attention schema theory can therefore explain why a brain would conclude that such a mystery exists." Unquote. The attention schema theory, like the philosophy of Daniel Dennett on consciousness, leaves me a bit confused. I'm not saying that there is no attention schema component of human consciousness. What I don't understand is how something non-conscious can conclude that it is conscious. From an objective standpoint, I can imagine debating whether a robot is conscious or whether the robot is just saying that it is. But in the case of my own mind, Graziano is suggesting that I am not conscious at all, I just think I am. But if I think at all, then I am, right? The mystery that the attention schema theory attempts to disregard, as far as I'm concerned, remains firmly mysterious. The hard problem is suggested to be no problem at all. The conscious mind just thinks there is a hard problem. I can concede that our conscious intuitions about what we are might lead us totally astray of the truth, but I cannot concede the possibility of discovering that I am not really conscious. I just think I am. Let's imagine what a minimal phenomenal consciousness might be like. If attention of either the top-down or the bottom-up variety were absent, but all other brain functions were intact, what would remain of the conscious experience? I suggest that perception would be confusing and ever-changing, but that we would still perceive. I would also expect emotions to persist. In fact, I hypothesize that something like consciousness without focal attention occurs when we dream. The frontal cortex is relatively suppressed during REM sleep which is why we have sleep paralysis preventing us from acting out our dreams. If the prefrontal cortex is adequately disabled, I would expect the result to be a state of confusion and vagueness without any capacity to control the focus and direction of the experience. And at least in my case, this is a pretty good description of the dream state. Upon waking, if we remember a dream, we might notice that a person appearing in the dream kept changing their identity, or there were two people at the same time, we might notice that the setting in the dream was one location now and then another, or somehow two different places at the same time. These observations accord with the vagueness that I would expect in the perceptual domain if top-down attentional mechanisms were disabled. Further, I find in dreams that I cannot focus to accomplish simple tasks. I cannot read or dial a phone without being frustrated and incompetent. Notably, emotions run high. Furthermore, the capacity to remember what occurs in dreams is highly limited most of the time. If this hypothesis is correct, then focal attention is crucial to waking conscious analysis and behavior. Nevertheless, rich phenomenal consciousness persists in the absence of attention.